Hi, this is Arnie Arneson. Welcome to Race Class with Boston University Law Professor Jonathan Feingold, our year-long look at critical race theory. During the course of the summer, we have been going to race class twice a month, not once a month. We are up to episode eight, part B of Race Matters Before Admissions. For those of you who are just tuning in to race class, let me remind you why we're doing this. Legislation restricting the teaching of race and racism in public schools and government entities has spread across the country. In an effort to respond, Boston University Law Professor Jonathan Feingold and myself, uh, Arnie Arneson, are providing a once a month during the summer, twice a month course conversation where listeners can hear what it's like to approach race and racism from a place of curiosity and history rather than fear and anxiety. And as Arneson and Feingold have noted, We know race matters. Part of this project is to make sense of what that means. So let me welcome to the program our two uh, wonderful guests. One is the host of this show, Jonathan Feingold, and he is a Boston University law professor and his area of expertise is critical race theory. Thank you so much for coming back and for teaching to us uh, for almost uh, half a year now. So thank you. Thanks, Arnie. Um, In a second, I'll turn it back over to you so you can more thoroughly introduce our guest, Dr. William Sturkey. But for listeners, I just want to situate us in today's conversation. And as Arnie mentioned, we doubled up this summer uh, as opposed to just once a month. We've gone twice a month so that we could do a mini series on affirmative action. And our angle has been, how does race matter before affirmative action arrives or when you don't have affirmative action? In other words, what is the racial baseline against which affirmative action intervenes? And the reason why we ask this question is because a common dig against affirmative action is that that is the moment in which an institution is injecting race into an otherwise race neutral process. And that's just inaccurate in all sorts of ways. And so over the summer, we've been asking how race matters before admissions, during admissions, and after admissions. And we've been really fortunate to bring in some uh, experts uh, across a range of topics just help us uh, dig deeper. Last week, we, or last episode, we engaged at a somewhat superficial level the question of how does race matter before admissions? To do so, we explored UNC's legacy of racial exclusion. And this was our takeaway. And I'd invite uh, Dr. Sturkey like, um, in a moment to let us know whether you agree, whether you disagree, or whether you think we're not even asking the right questions. But our takeaway was that over UNC's history, the institution has invested far more in racial exclusion than in racial inclusion. And it's actually not even that close. Uh, And so with that, Arnie, let me turn it back over to you to introduce uh, Dr. William Sturkey, who I'm just so glad to be here um, with us today. Dr. William Sturkey is an associate professor of history at the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill, where he teaches classes on modern American history. He is the author of Hadesburg, Hattiesburg? Hattiesburg, I guess, is an American city in black and white and a variety of public writing that has appeared in the New York Times, the Atlantic, Washington Post, and other venues. 
Dr. Sturkey, thank you so much for doing this. Uh, again, Jonathan, thank you for knocking on Dr. Sturkey's door and inviting him here. And let me just tell you something. Last week, as Jonathan was beginning to go through the history of UNC, I was blown away. And I started sharing it with other people on other radio shows. So I am so glad he asked you here because I am now so damn curious. I want to know more. And that's one of the reasons why he invited you on. So thank you for joining us. And so, uh, Dr. Sturkey, uh, let me actually sort of zoom out for a little bit. Uh, on this show on race class, Arnie and I are constantly asking how the past informs the present. Neither of us are trained historians, and you are. And so I'm just really interested in your perspective, either professionally or personally, how do you think about the relationship between the past and the present? I think that the past is implicated in all sorts of systems and structures that we exist in today. Just one example, I, you know, I think that individuals in this country absolutely can accomplish things or achieve things that the majority of people coming from their station in life maybe could not. And those are often exceptional people. But generally speaking, systems and structures, access to opportunities or lack of access to opportunities fundamentally shape the way that our society has played out over the last 200 to 300 years. You know, it doesn't take a, you know, a sociologist to understand that people who came from families that had great wealth in the 1850s probably have a higher income, probably have more wealth today in almost every single case. So, you know, that's just one superficial example. But, and you know, that institutions have also played a role in helping to shape the way that the black and white wealth gap or the gender wealth gap or any number of different things in our own society today. And I'm happy to talk about more details. No, and so I think that's a really nice you know, just uh, sort of top level way to think about it, which uh, again, is just sort of consistent with the basic insight that the past matters, it shapes the present and in a lot of predictable ways. You don't actually have to get a PhD in sociology or history to, to understand that if your family held massive wealth in the 1850s, uh, maybe because um, you were somehow implicated in the institution of slavery, uh, likely that you're going to continue to hold that today. And so let's get a little bit more concrete. And so historically, uh, just focusing on UNC, in part because UNC is one of the two universities that is going to be defending its right to consider applicant race as part of its admissions process this fall. What are two or three key moments, events, or just pieces of the UNC's racial history that everyone should know about, but maybe doesn't? Sure. So one thing that I want to start with is that UNC talks about its history all the time. We are the oldest public university in the country, and it's all over the place. If you go to like the UNC Visitor Center, everything's about history, you know, about from the first student to the first trustees. But there are certain parts that are left out. OK, and one of the things that's left out is the way that race played a role in the founding of the university. OK, race was absolutely essential from the beginning. So people need to understand that. North Carolina at that time was a slave society, okay? Its entire economy was predicated on slave-based agrarian production. And so when the university was founded, North Carolina being a slave society, the university was by necessity tied into the framework of that society. So the university was founded and, and began with land donated from local plantation owners. I sit two miles down the street from the university right now on land that used to be owned by a major slave-owning plantation owner. The university was founded in large part 
through S-cheated property, the sales of S-cheated enslaved property throughout the late 18th century, early 19th century, literally taking possession of people's sometimes land, sometimes property or residences, housing, but then also sometimes enslaved people selling that land and property to raise money to then build the university. And then the third factor in that was that the university was built by rented enslaved labor. So the university didn't actually own enslaved people who were laboring on the campus, but the university rented enslaved labor from the local slave owners to literally build the campus. And then even when classes began, enslaved people were working on campus. They were doing things like running errands for students, doing their laundry. In the earliest books that we have at, at UNC Chapel Hill, the earliest registrar, there are different categories for things like housing, for tuition. And then there's a separate category right there in the record books for servant hire. Students would pay $2 a semester to hire enslaved people who were working on the campus. And so slavery was essential to the foundations of UNC Chapel Hill to the point where you can certainly conclude that without the institution of slavery, we would probably have a University of North Carolina, but it absolutely would not be in Chapel Hill. And it absolutely would not have been founded when it was without the institution of slavery. So that's all so interesting. And in part to me, you know, the dissonance between being invested in talking about history, but then telling a history that at best is incomplete, but also the claim that UNC is the nation's oldest public university. It was not a public university, at least as far as I can tell, at least until like at best the mid 1950s. And when as a function of federal intervention, UNC was forced to start admitting non-white students. And so I guess my question just sort of again in this vein of telling stories and telling history, is UNC attempting to tell a more comprehensive story now? Did the summer of 2020 that galvanized so many you know, institutional efforts to reckon with race, did that shift how UNC is telling its story? Was there a momentary shift and then a backlash? Like, what is like the current fights on, or, you know, contestations on campus over how the institution talks about itself and tells its own story? So UNC has started a more open process of telling its own story, as you say, largely in the summer of 2020. Before that, there was a moratorium on renaming buildings, okay? And after, after the summer of George Floyd in 2020, then people were really pushing harder to rename buildings. They were, the first buildings that were renamed were all people who were involved in the Wilmington Massacre of 1898, when somewhere between 60 to 300 African-Americans were murdered in cold blood in Wilmington, North Carolina, in, one of, in the largest racial coup in American history. So a lot of people involved with that they had buildings named for them on campus. And that those were the first names removed. Um, but we still have other building names that the, the university is working on, pushing to people to consider whether or not they should be removed. At least one of those individuals was, in, was a member of the Ku Klux Klan. A couple other building names have been removed for other members of the Ku Klux Klan. But the university has not done any sort of, you know, public facing outreach that's designed to help people understand better the history of the university. A lot of it is quite literally whitewashed. Like for example, every time that we celebrate the trustees, you know, nothing's ever mentioned about their connection to slavery. Virtually all of them were connected to slavery in some way, shape or form, as was the university itself. But you know, there are like paintings, for example, on campus of them laying the foundation 
of the first university buildings. But of course, we know that wealthy white men didn't go to work without their enslaved laborers at that period of time. So a lot of it's just been sort of, it's really been sanitized. I think whitewashed is, is the word that a lot of people want to use. But I think sanitization to make people feel more comfortable by just simply removing African-Americans from that narrative in order to focus on those white you know, benefactors who the, the quads are named after, the buildings are named for, um, and, and all of that. So Jonathan, just let me just make a point. You you mentioned that at the very beginning, it describes itself, UNC, as the oldest public university in America. And here's the problem, and Dr. Sturkey, I think you will agree with this. The problem is, is that in the very beginning, when you talk about a public university, you would not include property in the definition of public. So because slaves were property, they could not, in fact, be public, Jonathan. Therefore, they could be legitimate in saying that they're the oldest public you know, university in the country because by definition, according to slave owners and to slave states, slaves could not be, quote unquote, part of the definition of public because they were, in fact, property. And I think in some ways you almost need to have an addendum to the oldest public university and almost include that definition of what did they mean by public and who did they exclude because blacks were slaves slaves were property property couldn't be public and in the very beginning you begin to sort of undermine it by redefining how public was understood at the very beginning and who was not included in that definition of public and so, Dr. Sturkey, in a second, I'm going to come right back to you with another question. But I think, Arnie, so something that you're saying is, well, sure, UNC was the oldest public university in the nation, if by public we mean sort of in the Dred Scott sense of public, by in the ways that from like the, the Supreme Court to um, state legislatures to just other sort of networks of power in the country, um, the claim that not everyone was entitled to full and equal citizenship uh, even sort of thinking about citizenship loosely uh, in this nation. And so in that sense, well, no, not everyone is part of the public. And so, you know, if we're going to accept that definition, and I think my quarrel there is, well, that's not what UNC is um, trying to convey when they say oh, public. They're trying to convey something different. And so, um, Dr. Sturkey, we on race class have at times posed a somewhat rhetorical, provocative question where we ask, in what year? was the United States no longer a racist society? And we do this in part because there's a general, I think, sense often that we are as a nation post-racial and that if you look back in the past at some point, yeah, you know, there is that ugly history, but we've overcome it. But if you actually force someone to say, well, when, like what year, then that can generate really, you know, important questions. Because if someone says, well, I don't know, says Brown, it's like, okay, well, you had 10 years of the South essentially saying, make me, um, and forcing Congress to pass the Civil Rights Act of 1964. And then we know that that led to massive resistance. And so you can tell a very different story. And so I want to ask this provocative question to you, not to put you on the spot of giving us a date per se, but just to help us think about how we would even try to answer this question. So if we agree that at some point UNC you know, was a committed to racial exclusion and, you know, self-identified as racially hostile to people of color. In what year did UNC overcome this history? In what year did UNC become, quote unquote, post-racial? Or how really? should we even think about, you know, asking that, answering that? Yeah, that's fair. 
So Jim Crow ended in 1968, maybe 1965. I think you could say that in the South. I personally don't always like to call a country or even a society racist. I think that the people who live in that country and dictate policies very much might be racist and very often are racist and implement policies that are very racist. Yeah, absolutely. But it's hard for me to settle on a society being racist, especially with you know, the way that voices are heard or not heard. It's just about whether or not people in power are. But I think that UNC has never, by any stretch of any imagination, overcome its racial history or come even remotely close to it. We don't have any Black deans on the, in the whole College of Arts and Sciences where 75% of our undergraduate students are housed. Like, as an African-American educator on the campus, I've never seen a Black dean in my unit in a decade. So, you know, that's just one example. But then you know, we had Confederates flying, you know, we had neo-Confederates flying Confederate flags on the quad on Monday, you know, so I don't think that we are in a post-racial society. We have a, a dorm named after a guy who was involved in the sex slave trade of teenage Black girls selling them so they could be raped by his friends and colleagues. And we have a dorm named after that guy, and he was in the Klan. So it's very hard for me as a historian knowing this to think that UNC is in any way um, beyond the racial implications of its past. And, I, I, you know, the university was segregated for like 70% of its existence, right? African-Americans were only allowed to be professors there since 1966. You know, that was when my dad was in college age. And so, you know, it's really just sort of one generation removed. And I think that um, UNC has a lot more work to do if it ever is to really truly be post-racial. And one thing that I, I want to emphasize while I'm here is that I find it very frustrating knowing the history of how racial inequalities were produced and reproduced in this country and how we're supposed to remedy those in that the state itself, the state of North Carolina, the federal government, however you want to define state, the state legislated racial inequality for centuries in this country. And now you know, the onus of overcoming racial inequalities are supposed to rest on individuals and their families. But that's virtually impossible to overcome that sort of systematic um, disadvantage, you know, that lasts for up to 200, 250 years in this country when it was the state, right? It was the law. It was exclusion. The reason we don't have a lot of Black doctors is because people in North Carolina didn't trade black, train Black doctors for 100 years, you know? What do Black communities deserve in terms of Black doctors, Black lawyers, Black educators, in terms of, you know, the way that discrimination prevented them from having access to those things in the past? And I think that's something that a lot of people don't think about is all the Black tax dollars that have been wasted going to places like UNC Chapel Hill to educate whites who had a lot more social mobility when Black communities were, were left to fend for themselves. Many years ago, maybe three or four years ago, I interviewed Richard Rothstein, the title of his book, and I want to remind people because it, it just touches on exactly what you're saying, Dr. Sturkey. It's entitled The Color of Law, A Forgotten History of How Our Government Segregated America. And as I'm listening to you, Dr. Sturkey, I'm screaming in my head about the policies of government 
that created the great divide, that denied the opportunity for people of color to be able to access wealth. I mean, nobody, nobody acknowledges that. That's part of, again, the forgotten history, like the forgotten history of UNC. And again, we keep talking about how civics matters. And I want to know what civics are you talking about and what are you going to be leaving out? So I just want to throw out the book, The Color of Law, as you were talking, because again, it is sort of a backdrop for your conversation. And I really appreciate the way that you engage the sort of intentionally provocative question, because it really helpfully reminds us that one of the reasons why we continue to see racial inequalities across, you know, every domain of life is because for the first, I don't know, 200 years of this country's existence, the law was formally designed to do that, to create and to propagate racial hierarchy, and to somehow think that you can just turn off bad laws and produce society that is racially just and in which you're going to somehow, you know, obtain equality is foolish um, at best. And so I really um, appreciate you thinking about helping us just sort of pinpoint that. And to me, it also brings us back in a particular way to the conversation about affirmative action. Yeah. Because affirmative action, you know, most modestly is recognizing that race and racism remain relevant forces in American society. And in order to overcome them, we have those realities, we have to take them into account, uh, which is a far more modest approach to reckoning with history than any other numbers of approaches that um, uh, one might come up with. And so I guess my question um, for you is in thinking about what UNC or the state of North Carolina or the country would need to do in order to reckon with and to overcome this history, like really trading on your historical expertise and historical lens, what are just some of the essential things that we need to do if we actually want to live up to our highest you know, aspirations of, as a country? I mean, look, race was the primary consideration when so many of these laws were created and therefore race should still be a primary consideration as we're trying to develop new policies that can evil the, um, level the playing field. I think so just like one example is that so, you know, I think that a lot of people who are against things like affirmative action or any discussion of structural disadvantages or anything like that, there's this huge hysteria, of course, I don't have to tell you that. But like one of the things they want to do basically is just protect the pre-existing advantages that they do have, right? Any sort of advantage that might have a level the playing field, such as affirmative action or race considerations and admissions, they want to do away with, but they've already got a great deal of structural advantages based on that history. One example. So if UNC Chapel Hill is no longer allowed to think about race in college admissions, one thing UNC Chapel Hill does do is consider legacy in college admissions. Yes. And guess what? So if you are a student and your grandfather or your you know great great grand whoever went to UNC Chapel Hill before it was desegregated, then that will be considered as a factor in college admissions, but race could not be because we've got rid of race, right? Well, guess what? I mean, that's almost like a grandfather clause because the people who had grandfathers and grandmothers and great grandfathers who went to UNC Chapel Hill when it was segregated, they're all white. So this would by effect, you know, this would basically compound racial disadvantage by, you know, eliminating that possible legacy for African-Americans. Of course, that legacy isn't there anyway, but by eliminating race, then you won't be able to balance out the past in those racially discriminatory admissions laws or practices. And that's such a helpful example. And, and a couple of weeks ago, we talked about the 
staggering racial advantages that white students at Harvard enjoy as a function of legacy and other related preferences. But and, and I think we don't even need the basically or effectively legacy, especially at institutions that employed de jure segregation that were excluding uh, students of color. If you're employing legacy now, that is a grandfather clause. Uh, and, you know, in every way except for like a form uh, is a sort of functional racial exclusion. Uh, Arnie, did you want to jump yeah, in? I also? Just, I, as I, I'm, I'm thinking about legacy and I'm thinking it's actually code for white and wealth. I think the way to show it, Dr. Sturkey, is to show the class of 1950, the class of 1955, show the visual picture of those classes. And then by looking at the visual picture, people will understand what is the definition of legacy because they see it because they see it. And what will they see? They will see a mass of white faces and nothing else. And sometimes as we talk about legacy, we also need for people to visualize it. And I think that's part of the power. Yeah, one of the things that's really perverse about the complaint in this particular case is it's based off the 14th Amendment, which of course we know we have because of racial discrimination. But that racial discrimination was zero, like no blacks allowed, period. So the complaint is based off of this idea that Asian American students and white students are being racially discriminated against in the same way that African American students once were, or at least in a similar way. I, I'll just point out, white students are 58.3% of, of our undergraduate population. Asian American students are 10.9% of our undergraduate population. They're the two highest racial demographics in the entire student body. So the idea that they're being discriminated against must be left out in any column that's that's trying to make this argument. But also, we should consider this when we're when we're you know do we actually buy this case that they're facing abject racial discrimination when they're the two highest racial demographics in the entire student body? I need to let you both go, please, Jonathan. Forgive me, but this again is a fabulous conversation from race class. We are talking about race matters before admissions, UNC's legacy of racial exclusion. We've been having a conversation with Dr. William Sturkey. Dr. William Sturkey is an associate professor of history at the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill. We could do this for 10 hours. Uh, again, I want people to take copious notes and you both have been great teachers. So thank you so much for joining us, Dr. Sturkey. And thank you again, Jonathan, for being willing to hold my hand for a year so we can teach race class. Thanks, Arnie. Thank you. All you folks that you own my life never made me sacrifice demons there on my trail standing at the cross of rose of a hill i look to the left i look to the right hands that grab me on the every side Got my prize, which I'll sell if that is mine. Think money rules and all else fails. Go sell your soul, keep your shell. I'm trying to protect what I keep inside. All the reasons why I live my life.
Running at the point, road across your down. 